Welcome to the Smug Film Podcast. I'm your host, Cody Clark. With me today is Jenna Ipcar. Hello. And live via Skype is Chloe Peltier. Hey. Chloe's here today to tell us about the principles of animation. This is something we started to talk about on the last podcast and didn't really get to fully explore or fully understand. So she's going to school us on this, the principles of animation because apparently it's not just animation that they apply to, right? They apply to everything or something. Yeah, like I've never really heard anybody else say this before, but like animation principles actually work really well for other stuff too. I mean, they're a really technical thing. I learned about them when I was at Full Sail and like, but then I lost interest in animation kind of, but they really stuck with me, like the names of them and stuff and like the way they work. It applies to film. It applies to storytelling. It applies to like timing of stuff in like conversations and everything. Like if you're a stand-up comedian, I could see how the principles would really help you out. They come from, I mean, basically there were the nine old men at Disney. Uh, <laughs> Wait, can we have like an them. animation of these nine old men? Yeah, this should be the animated episode of the podcast. <laughs> and I want like an animated like Chloe with like on it by a chalkboard. Exactly. And yeah. everything's moving. Like everything has faces. <laughs> if anybody's listening at home and you know, is good at animation or whatever. This is the episode to do that for and send it in and as like a fan art thing. If you yeah. want to animate this, I will come up with a song that <laughs> you can add into it. Swear yeah, to God. Cody will play guitar. Like, <laughs> oh yeah, Cody. Cody's great at guitar. But um, basically like the book that started all this, the, the 12 principles of animation were published in is called The Illusion of Life. And it's by Ollie Johnston and... Uh, Frank Thomas, and there were two of the nine old men, right, <laughs> at Disney. But uh, basically, like, these guys were thinking, you know, animation doesn't look consistent and real enough. So they made up a set of rules that you can think about when you're doing animation to make it more consistent and, like, suspend the disbelief more, basically. Like, from the 1930s onwards is about when this started to take hold and people used to started to like take it serious. Yeah, because a lot of people feel like 30s into 40s is like the golden age for all that. Yeah, totally. And the interesting thing about it is like, if you've worked with film or animation at all, you pretty much instantly realize that they're kind of the same thing because like, you know, it's all just frames. So you can easily blend the two and that's what compositing is. You know, like you can put a fake person in a frame with a real person and whatever. You can do that, really? <laughs> are there any movies that have done that there's lots of movies that have done that that's awesome <laughs> <laughs> come on cody <laughs> <laughs> sorry continue <laughs> actually the guy who uh who wrote the animator survival kit which is one of my favorite books richard williams he uh was obsessed with all of this kind of stuff. And he was kind of an apprentice of a lot of the Disney animators, not the nine old men, but like a bunch of the ones that came after them. And um, he actually did the, he was the art director for Who Framed Roger Rabbit and like did probably one of the best live action mixed with animation movies of all time. Yeah, that one uh, looked pretty good. Yeah, he is really freaking good. And he also did The Thief and the Cobbler like he spent like 30 years on it or something. It was like his baby and he was like really meticulous about it. And then the studio ended up like he didn't have enough money. So they like took it away. And, and they essentially kind of pillaged it because they took the blue genie from that and used it in a lad and, and all sorts of shit like that. Right. 
Well, yeah, basically, like, it it came out before, or it was going on way before Aladdin was, like, years and years and years before, like, yeah. 1970s and stuff. And uh, it has Vincent Price, and um, he's really good in it. But the thing is, uh, Richard Williams is a really big Chaplin fan, and, like, he um, he did a, most of the stuff about the characters, what makes them awesome. It's like there's two characters. There's the thief, and there's... Um, the cobbler. And there's the cobbler, yes. And, uh, nice. And they they both are very silent. They don't really talk. And a lot of their expression is through their movement. But what they did when they uh, pillaged it, as you say, when, they, when Miramax took it over in the 90s when we were kids and they released it on VHS. Yeah, it was they, like a straight to VHS thing, right? Totally. They like shortened it. They gave it like kids songs and they gave voices to the characters. So... So but Matthew was there the animation to support even them moving their mouths? They actually added in stuff in between. So they like imitated his style. And what you can do is you can go on YouTube and there's a thing called the Thief and the Cobbler Recobbled Cut. Right. It's like that's when they took all of it, all of the footage, as well as like animation tests that aren't even colored in and stuff that weren't finished. And like they put it all together in the order that like Richard Williams actually wanted it to be. So you can actually see it as it's supposed to look, at least the closest possible. And it's a way better movie. Nice. Like when I was a kid, I was a really big fan of even just like the shitty version because it's just really cool looking. And because uh, it's some of the best animation you'll ever see in your life. But when you're older and you see like the actual, how it's actually meant to be, it's like way more adult and way more fascinating. Uh, and there's actually a documentary about all this called Persistence of Vision. But yeah, that's not what I was getting at at first, we kind of trailed off. Yeah, let's get back to what the actual principles are. Let's break them down principle by principle. They, they're more in an order that starts differently than I'm going to, but I'm going to start with appeal. They, they use it with food a lot. They say make stuff look delicious, even if it isn't food. Um, it's basically like it makes people identify with a character uh, a lot because they see them and they fascinate them. It's, it's kind of a... Uh, it's a composition thing and, and also like a color thing and like a, how round people's faces are and where they're placed in the frame. Basically, like like almost the more simple something is, the more you identify with it in a way. And I feel like with film, if you're looking at a frame and it's composed really well and the colors are like stick out in the right way, if you were to blur your eyes, like almost if you were nearsighted, you could still like have that image be in your mind. Or if the image were like a thumbnail or something, I think that like appeal kind of applies to that with all of film. Any frame of uh, film, if you kind of use that rule of thumb of like, I want it to stick in the audience's mind right away. And like, really just like, you can't get it out of your head as far as like the strikingness of the image, you know? So I have a vendetta that I'm going to state right now against uh -oh. CGI animation, which isn't to say, all right, that's, oh, I've already overstated it because it's not like I, I don't hate it. But I have to say that a big part of why I just appreciate old style hand-drawn or even stop animation and gosh, I mean, basically any other type of animation other than CGI is that CGI never has an appeal for me, even totally food, you know, like it's interesting, you know, bringing up. So I'm really curious basically to, to hear what the rest of these uh, principles of animation are because it might all just line up that uh, these are the, all of the things that I don't like about CGI, which is what I'm suspecting. Well, 
But right. the, the thing about also, I mean, it's interesting. So I'm trying to apply appeal to CGI and I'm, I'm sure that for people who love it there, this isn't like, you know, a question, but I'm trying to even think now of just food that I've seen rendered via CGI in like a Pixar movie or. Well, Ratatouille's. Yeah. My example of that. That's the That's only right. one that like really But Ratatouille good. had great lighting, as you said in the last yeah. one. It's a yes. gorgeous looking movie. And I that mean, was definitely the only movie that I thought, oh, whoa, they're finally getting close. Yeah, it's their best work. And yet they've like not followed through with it. No. And it's a bummer. And the only other movie that I think has always looked good in CGI was Toy Story. But that's because you're dealing with plastic toys. Totally. I, I agree with you guys a lot on this because... um the whole way that I found out about principles of animation and everything was I went to full sale. I was an animator student. Like I, I stopped giving a shit about CGI. Like I looked at it for too long and I just decided that I didn't want to look at fake shit anymore. See, I definitely, I love animation and I'll say my, my background with this is that I've, I've drawn my whole life. It, it, there is definitely more of an appeal and I don't know if it's in part because of that or it's or just nostalgia growing up with it versus not I haven't grown up with CGI particularly but I don't know it's like when I look at Pixar um, storyboards I think they look like I remember seeing uh, an, a, in a bookstore the storyboard for Finding Nemo mm. and I was shocked because I was like wow this looks like a better film oh yeah and and they just it's just it looks like the Pixar style definitely but there's some there's just more heart and soul to it for me than seeing the movie, which wasn't bad by any means. I think all of the Pixar movies are really enjoyable, if not great, you know, but as far as like, can they stand up to older Disney movies or Miyazaki, who is, uh, you know, better than all of them, you know, no, for me. Well, it's also like um, when you look at storyboards for films, sometimes you see a way better film just in general, like a lot of people don't know, but usually whenever any big movie comes out, there's an art book of it that comes out as well. And it's usually like a limited run. You can get it in Barnes and Noble. You know, it's like a big book and you'll see all the concept art for like, even like a movie that flops like John Carter or whatever. And you'll see one for like Avatar and stuff. And you'll be flipping through there and you're going to see like 10 or 20 instances of a movie that you would have fucking loved. But somewhere along right. the line in making it, it just turned into shit. Because you'll see these individual artists giving their take, you know, like, all right, this is my idea of what John Carter would be. And then that goes, you know, on a desk and then it gets lumped in in a meeting with a bunch of other ideas. And yeah, it's sort like of, telephone. Yeah, it, exactly. It's a plain yeah. telephone, but with art. I think what it comes down to is, yeah, there's just too many cooks in the kitchen when it comes to fucking CGI a lot of the time. And like, I think why these principles are important when it comes to anything is because if you follow them properly on a technical level, you can take any tool like CGI or film or whatever and actually make it good if you have a good story to back it up. That's the thing is like, I used to think, like when I first heard the principles of animation, I was like really rebellious and shit. And I like thought that they were bullshit. I was like in 2D animation class and I was like, this is stupid. This is formulaic. Like, why would I want to use a formula to make something? And yeah, like, it initially sounds very like fascist and very exactly. subjective too. Cause you hear a word like appeal and you think, oh, well appeal to you, to whom, you know, like what's exactly. appealing to one person is, a, isn't appealing to another person. But the, from the way that you're talking about it, it sounds 
Like it's more akin to um, what you run into when you start listening to music and then learning music theory and realizing that, you know, there are these tones that sound appealing to the ear that you just can't avoid. It's so fucking hard to explain it without (laughs) going into like 20 minutes of music theory. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But basically like you can't find a dissonant interval appealing. You can only find it appealing if it's resolving into something that actually does resolve. So it's like, every conflict needs like a resolution. It's that concept, but in music. So it seems like there's a, there's like a biological aspect, a psychological aspect to appeal that, absolutely. you know, people might initially think like, oh, you're just trying to get into my mind and like control my brain and tell me what to think is appealing. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, you're hardwired for certain aspects of appeal, whether it's music, art, whatever. Yeah, like for instance, when I was in that class and the first time I heard about 12 principles and I was like shit talking, I was like heckling the teacher and like I was a little asshole and I, and I was like going like, Damn, <laughs> I, girl. Was a, I was like 18. I was an asshole. Sure you didn't get kicked but, out of the school? <laughs> almost did actually. Really? Um, but yeah. Let's uh, talk about that real quick. Yeah, let's talk about oh, your like rebellious past. How'd you get kicked? <laughs> just, you know, sum it up in like a couple sentences. How'd you uh, almost like, get kicked out? Took a shit teacher's desk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's not that exciting. I mostly just like got Peed on the to, desk. Got, <laughs> I got it was mostly urine. And like theory and details and like trying to decide what I wanted to do as an artist and then freaking uh failed a bunch of classes because I wasn't paying attention because each class in full t- full sale is like one month long. So you have to like be really fucking focused and it's all very technical. It's like you don't really get to like talk about awesome like psychological aspects of a story or whatever like we're going into. Like I loved uh, 2D animation class and psychology class the most because they talk about like psychology of characters and shit. And I was like, that's what I care about. And I didn't realize that I just wanted to be a fucking writer. Mm. So I spent like a whole bunch of money just like learning to do technical shit when I could have just gone and been a fucking writer. But it's like, come in handy <laughs> now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like it all comes full circle. So it's whatever. I'm not regretting. I just think it's funny. So but, what's um, the what's the next principle? Okay. Well, I think actually a good one to go into right now since um I can tell that like if I go principle by principle like one at a time, we'll never get through it. A good principle is straight ahead action versus pose to pose. Uh basically like working in passes versus impro- improvising. Like, Jenna, you've done drawing and stuff a lot, so you know that, like, it's better to... Say if you're drawing someone's face, you're not going to just fucking, like, focus on just the eye and, like, make it look awesome and then, like, slowly work your way out to the rest of the face because then the proportions will be all fucked up, right? Right. You got to, like, put the eye down, move on to the next eye, and then do the detail later. Or do, like, the whole head with, like, a circle and... Yeah, you got to do the... Cross for the eyes or whatever. ...out really sloppy and shitty, and you have to get that right... So that you can have a foundation to put stuff on it and you just keep laying details over it over and over again. Well, it's the same way with animation and even with editing and film and everything like it's like needing an outline before you write a script. Exactly. Like it's it works with all this stuff. But basically in animation, what you've got is like, say a person is walking across the room and picking something up. Say if they start sitting in a chair, you have the key of them sitting down and then you have the one where they're standing up. And then you have the one where they're over on the other side of the room. And then you have the one where they bend down to pick up the thing. And then you have the one that where they've picked up the thing. Those are like the basic, those are the key actions, right? Those are the, the main things that are supposed to be there in order for the story to exist, right? 
So it's like when you're doing animation, you're you put those there first, you make sure they look really good, and then you figure out what's going to happen in between those, and you just keep laying shit in in between those like little by little in order of like how important the visual of it is. Mm. So like you've got your in between keys and all that stuff. It's the same way with doing a story or doing a script, like you said. Like if you want uh, to not have to go back and figure it all out as you go, you just like do that. But sometimes, sometimes though, it works better to improvise straightforward on stuff. Like um, I know, like Cody, you and I both write poetry. Like it works better to just like do that straight ahead. Right. As you get better at it, you can sort of just bang it out. Exactly. It's like you just kind of. You just kind of let it come to you and you go or if you're doing um, like like I said, if you're doing improv, best thing to do is usually just to like throw shit out there and like. Right. It's the whole yes and thing. Yeah. So it's like it works. And sometimes with animation, people will do straight ahead action. It's really what it comes down to is whether like what suits the scene. And I think that the whole rejection of stuff like principles or like traditions, like right now, like, you know, we've been talking a lot about how like people are rejecting certain ways of doing lighting properly in film. Like they just reject a lot of stuff that used to be considered like objectively correct to do in movies and stuff because like they, they just, I don't know why I think it's just like an experimenting thing or whatever, but it's getting to the point where this kind of stuff could benefit them but yeah, it's time to um, return a little bit back to traditionalism and certain aspects because sometimes you learn how to do something like really well and it's like, all right, well, that's how you do it. It's like with, uh, you know, certain lighting things that we took for granted in the 90s, we've strayed from as we've gone into digital exactly. and it's because the old guys just aren't doing it anymore. And it's like hey. young guns that don't really know what they're supposed to be doing. So like, you know, my perfect example is like a movie like Showgirls that was fucking trashed when it came out. Part of why it was trashed is because a lot of the most beautiful aspects of it, the swirling cinematography, the great lighting, the gorgeous colors, like that was all kind of just like humdrum. Like that's what you expect from a movie in the theater at that time period. So when we go back and look at Showgirls, it's impossible not to be like, wait a second, how did nobody realize how fucking gorgeous this movie is? And the reason is because it was just taken for granted. You know, and that happens with like a lot of like old like 40s stuff and shit that people went back and reevaluated in the past. And like it was things that people definitely just took for granted as what a movie was supposed to look like. And I think that happens with like animation, too, and whatever oh. else. Like I go back and I look at like Tex Avery shit and it looks light years better than anything that's on television now. And it's like, we have better resources. We have better everything else. Why am I looking at like, you know, a kid's show that just looks like fucking shit. It's like people just thought shit out more. It's not really that the tools are worse. The tools, if anything, the tools, like we have a lot more opportunity to do more shit because I think because people have that stuff in front of them to do whatever, just like they have Google in front of them and everything. It's like people take it for granted. So they don't think out what they're doing. You know, they, they just like, they don't like study anything. They just kind of like, are like, well, I could look it up right now. So like, whatever, I'm not going to pay attention to, you know, like, yeah, I would, I would love to hear though. Also what the difference between budget is from then and now, because I agree with you, Cody, you see these cartoons now on kids shows that are just, um, they look like flash animation, like yeah. like cheap flash animation. And 
I don't get it. And I or I understand that it looks cheap to to produce. I'm sure that there's a much smaller crew than what, what would have been needed for like a uh, Animaniacs episode. And you have an audience oh, that man. isn't going to like put their arms in the air and complain. You know, right. they're, they're fucking children. They don't, they're just going to eat whatever you put in front of their face, you know? Well, children are picky, but I agree that they're not going <laughs> to well, know the difference between like a beautiful bad, animation yeah. and, and, and not. Bad metaphor. But it's interesting because I remember I, I'm a huge fan of Pinky and the Brain. Huge fan. Love that show. So smart. So well thought out and well animated. You know, not going to not going to win prizes. It's, you know, TV show. But but compared to stuff now, it looks like yeah. fucking Mona Lisa. Exactly. And then even like, I, I mean, the music in that too, I remember I own the DVDs, so I've watched the bonus uh, stuff. And I remember them talking about the music choices and they had a full orchestra coming out there and recording music for Pinky and the Brain, which is something that you don't really see. And they had to push for that in the 90s. That was something that was being phased out anyhow. Mm. So I thought that's just interesting. I, I'm really curious and I'm sure that there's some correlation and hopefully someone out there knows more about it than than I clearly do. But I, I, I bet that a big part of it is just budget. But it's interesting because then you see these big CGI movies that have a crazy budget and then are producing stuff that maybe is technically better than what was produced the previous year, but not really leaps and bounds better visually. I don't know. It's just they, they don't impress me nearly as much as, you know, the triplets of Belleville right. or like a movie oh, that, that cool. has is, is hand animated via computer. Like I'm not against it. doesn't have to be all cells. You know what I mean? Right. Like, We're not analog purists. Here. Right. But I mean, you def- there's just more soul to it. And even in the scenes where it's clearly CGI that they've, they're sort of pasted. I remember like there's this sort of like 3d ish pan that happens a couple times in that movie around like a ship or a or mountain or something like that, or a building and it looks like it was, you can tell it was done on the computer, but it's still just, I don't know. I'd rather see that than see like, I don't know, Up. You know, and Up was a good movie. Yeah. It was a great movie. It just visually, it didn't do anything for me. Jenna, did you see the latest, you saw the latest Miyazaki, right? Princess Kaguya? Uh, oh, wait, he no, didn't do the, that. That was uh, Jim Wind Rises? The Wind Rises, Wind I did Rises. see that. Wind Rises was like... I should know, but I can't remember whether they like went back to traditional for that. I don't think they did. I think they just did it in a computer, but like it's so um, like it, it feels almost like it's about what it's like to be an animator, even though he's a, mm. a guy who eats airplanes. It's like so emotional and so adult and like it, do- it doesn't even really feel like an animated movie, even though it is. And it's like you can tell that he just went back to like all of the foundations of animation it was just like no this is gonna be like serious though like you know (laughs) oh yeah no i feel like none of his movies really they're they're so adult and they're so fantastic and yet they're so accessible for for any age range and big part of that i think is his attention to detail definitely one of the things i always think about for for uh, miyazaki is that he'll have scenes where you know the protagonist who's usually a young girl is you know gonna go somewhere so she has to stop put her shoes on Mm. and then she'll tap her foot on the ground to get her foot all the way in that shoe and then keep running it's stuff like that that really makes those movies and you don't even realize it until afterward i thought of the perfect principle for us to talk about right now is uh anticipation this is my favorite one anticipation is like the best example of how it applies to both the technicality and to the storytelling Because on a technical level, anticipation just means preparing for an action. If I'm going to jump, I'm not just going to instantly jump into the air. I'm going to like bend down a little bit first to like build up that momentum, almost like a spring or something. Or like if I'm going to if I'm going to reach into my pocket, I'm going to like pull my hand back first and then reach in, not just like reach my hand straight into my pocket. 
But the cool thing about animation story-wise, or I mean anticipation story-wise, is like it's the uh, it's the timing of shit. So you've got like a lack of anticipation in film right now because people just want like instant gratification as far as like action and stuff. Like I've noticed working in the theater, like a lot of the movies are just like, I'll be walking, I won't even be looking at the screen. I'll just be hearing explosion after explosion after explosion and like freaking beats of like, like music, like crescendos and everything. And there's no pauses. Right. You know, and that works into another principle, which is just timing in general. Like there's just a principle called timing. And what does timing go into? Timing just goes into like the emotion of a character with their pauses and everything. So they kind of work into one another. You know, I hearing you talk about this, too, it makes me sort of come up with a a theory that, you know, that the best animators kind of are actors in and of themselves. They're the ones you have to look at how people or things move. You know, they interpret it. They, they sit there for hours and hours doing the same thing over and over and over and over again until they perfect it. And then, you know, they come out with, yeah, realizing like, well, when somebody reaches into their pocket, maybe their eyes move first and then maybe they kind yeah. of turn their head and then maybe they, you know, lift their arm and put their hand in their pocket as opposed to just standing there and then, you know, suddenly their hands in their pocket or something. And I wonder maybe here's my half-assed theory right now. Pulled straight out of my ass for your ears. <laughs> it's disgusting for me to witness. I'm, I'm glad, glad this is an audio podcast. <laughs> <laughs> is that I wonder if with CGI, maybe what I'm sort of sensing and feeling is that you're having people that are just more interested in technical aspects than they are in emotional and physical aspects. Exactly. And that's not to put down all computer nerds as like, you know, people who can't interact or smile. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think that if you get people that are more interested in, in how something looks when it's stood still and less interested in, in the emotion behind it and the thought behind it. And that's really seems to be the difference between Miyazaki and, you know, the animators at Pixar. Well, that's like the, uh, the complaint that Miyazaki makes about anime and fans of anime is, you know, he's famously said he doesn't really like anime because it's clearly by people who just aren't living in their world. And a reason why his movies look the way that they do is because he goes out in the world and he lives and he, he encourages anybody who does animation. You have to fucking live in your world to be able to like convey it. And like, if you think about it, like a lot of fucking anime, it's like very disconnected from reality, not just in subject matter. Like it's just, it's like paper doll living, you know, it's oh, just, total fantasy characters with, you know, ridiculous gravity defying hair and boobs half the time and eyes, obviously. And yeah, and I agree with that. Is the people who like are involved with all that dress themselves that way and it doesn't work in real life. Yeah. Just like, <laughs> yeah, just like, I mean, I know like a million, I've known so many people who are like in their thirties and they all have dyed hair and like a million tattoos and stuff. And like, I'm cool with it. I'm not like judging them. I'm just saying like, I can tell that the culture of our fiction has seeped into our reality to the point where like, we think it'll work the same, but it doesn't. Like the way, the way that like, like a person looks in the light of like real life is not the same as in an anime. <laughs> like, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah, and like uh, it's when people get like a haircut from somebody in the movie that they thought exactly. looked cool with like a haircut. It's like, do you realize that that haircut needs to be maintained like up until like the minute before like the shot is taken and it needs to be lit from behind and from the side and all that. Like you can't get a fucking haircut from a movie you watched (laughs) or a cartoon you watch, especially not a fucking cartoon you watch because you're not the person who designed the haircut isn't even thinking about like, 
like how the hair stays where it stays or how it stays up or anything. Like you're not fucking clouds from Final Fantasy. <laughs> like the amount of fucking like product you would have to put in your hair and it still wouldn't look right. Like you you might as well just put plastic on your head in the mold of like his hair. That will look more like his hair than you putting like product in your fucking head, you know? So when people do cosplay and they're great, they are great. When it's on point, it's on point, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I agree with you guys. But that's like for one day, you know? You right, go out exactly. And you do the it's cosplay, for a couple of hours. And then you go home and that's it. Yeah. You know, you can get something to look good for like a couple of hours usually. But like to look like that all day long, like if, if a cartoon was realistic, it would be like 10 hours of just everybody working on their appearance and like no story. <laughs> like it would be like Gene Dealman, but it would just be like these characters like cutting like each one of their hairs to like the exact right length. So it's completely <laughs> straight. Like you can't maintain cartoon perfection. Which isn't to say that I only want to see cartoons about like businessmen who work nine to five jobs. No. Like I want to see some purple goddamn spiky hair. But yeah, I agree. I mean like that anything that's good and the same thing goes with I think everything agreed. You know, it's like it, you can't have something that's, that's good. That doesn't have any basis in reality. It needs some basis. If it's not physical, it has to be emotional or you got to meet them halfway. Yeah. It's like with up. That was that whole first act of it was meeting the, the viewer halfway and making them care about the character like real deeply. So you could then go on that stupid fucking escapade that you go on afterwards. (laughs) Like if the movie was just that last, chunk that that two-thirds chunk and then had like a pretty typical like first act where like the kid shows up and blah, 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 whatever like back to the future kind of thing like that movie wouldn't have been as well received as it was like yeah. it's essentially a short film extended on and then like a second adventure like my whole problem with fucking pixar and this is a piece i'm working on i just need to fucking finish is that they stopped making feature-length films after ratatouille they started making shorts but then they would fucking extend the short. Like Up is just an extended fucking short. Wally is just an extended fucking short. The only thing people really love about those two movies are the first acts and everything else is just like, and then I guess this stuff happens. It's like the thing that Disney did back in the day where like they would come out with like a really good movie, like Little Mermaid or whatever. Then they do Little Mermaid 2 or Lion King one and a half. And it was just like an extension. And now the extensions are built into the actual fucking product. That's the problem with Pixar is that they're building in the extensions. They're just making one like pretty good thing and then tacking on a whole bunch of other shit. Yeah. And then throwing in a couple of good, like with up, there's really good dog jokes with Wally. There's really good like Mac computer jokes. Yeah. And that's it. (laughs) It's like monsters university is the perfect kind of thing that like maybe five or six years ago would have been just a short that played on like fucking ABC channel or whatever, or was like a bonus on the fucking DVD. Yeah. I was going to need a whole movie at fucking college with the monsters characters. At least with the Disney um, sequels, they were straight to VHS. Exactly. Which I think now that's, I think goes into further problems with how every movie is now made to have a sequel. Like, uh, and it's a fucking tentpole film too. Like that fucking ice ages four, five, six. Like when we were kids, the fucking shitty ass uh, Land Before Time movies, they would all come to tape. You know, they would do like 13 of them, but like each year they would just come to tape. Like they knew that they couldn't get away with putting them in theaters. <laughs> but uh. it seems like it's it's really just like a marketing thing at this point. The object of like why a film is made has changed, I think. Because it's like at one point they were making movies and they were like, or they were making like animated movies even and they were like, 
I want to actually make people feel stuff with these. Yeah, because now, was, they were trying to win a battle. They were trying to convince people that animation could make you feel something. It was like the whole thing that Ebert uh, ran into, I guess, a couple of years ago, maybe a year or two before he died, where he, he said that video games aren't art. You know, that's the that's the battle that video games are still trying right. to have to you oh. know, live up to is that they're trying to have to prove that they're art. And that was what well, animation had to do. It had to sort of prove that it could be like beautiful, like a real film could be. That's what like a lot of the early Disney stuff. It was like, you know, we're making Sleeping Beauty and Snow White and we're trying to show you what we can really do. Like you, there was a proving themselves aspect that that produced really fucking good shit that it wouldn't have been there if people just accepted like, oh, yeah, you can do that. So let's throw out some more principles here. I'll just list the rest of them so that we can kind of just we'll like do like a lightning them. round. Yeah. All right. So we got uh, squash and stretch. That's like what like Tex Avery and stuff like you're talking about is all about. Like, I mean, last time you were talking about jello molds and like they're just squashing and stretching like a motherfucker. That's why they look so good is like they're just bouncing. It's like stuff. Kim Kardashian. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Question mark. Trying to make it topical. <laughs> but yeah, squash and stretch. That's just like when something, like if you bounce a ball, like it gets, it gets uh, the, like the volume distribution of it. So like even with a face, like if you, if you like make like a crazy face, you're going to like squeeze your face in and then like exaggerate it outwards. And I just sound totally weird right now because it's Yeah, I don't to... know if I understand that one. <laughs> no, I think I know what you're saying is that basically when you're drawing, I think it's, it's very easy. You can tell the difference between someone who is a great illustrator at expressions and who isn't because the people that aren't you know they'll draw a circle with a frowny face and the people who are know that there's way more that happens on a face than just a frown it's like emoticons versus like a nice piece of right some art like you know a photo it has to do with volume distribution and it has to do with flesh like that's part of what makes it look real is that like if you have like especially you'll see it in film even not animated film like with older people like I remember, uh, Cody, you told me to watch that movie Never Again. Mm -hmm. And that movie's amazing. But it's about an old couple. Well, like, and, they're, and they're like 40s and 50s. So let's not well, yeah, make them think they're elderly. Old for film or whatever. Like the idea being that like they're older than you normally yeah, see. Yeah, outside the demographic. But it's like one of the things I noticed the most about that movie, it, it's very tactile because like when they're having intimate moments, when they're like kissing and like, cuddling, like doing all their stuff, like, and they're touching each other's faces. You can really feel it because their faces have more flesh to them because they're a little bit older than we're used to seeing. Mm. Like we're used to seeing these people who, um, their faces are like perfect and all stretched out and everything and like totally taut. Whereas these people had a little bit of hang to their faces. And when they touch their faces, it's like, you can feel the touch of it. Right. Yeah. And that makes it sense. almost like, at first, like, people associate that with, like, oh, they're old, uh, it's gross. But, like, no, it's, like, you see it and you feel, like, warm inside. Like, you feel, you feel, um, like, they're beautiful people after, like, 20 minutes of it already. You're, like, more enamored with them than you would have been with, like, some random, like, 20-something person. That's a good and, point, yeah. You know? Yeah, and if you're gonna, if you're gonna draw that, basically, also, it just means that you're not gonna... If someone's drawing the outline of a face, it's not going to stay the exact same outline with the with the uh, interior uh, eyes, nose, and mouth moving. That entire head needs to be redrawn for you know every frame that their expression changes. So I can definitely yeah, totally. see what you're talking about. That's another principle: is um, solid drawing. 
which I think it's funny because some of these sound kind of sexual. Like you've got, <laughs> you've got solid drawing and you got squash and stretch and you got slow in and slow out. That's which like just clockwork orange. Like, <laughs> I know, yeah. like, right? It's like the old in, out, in, out. It's like the most sexual sounding freaking principle ever. There's one principle just called... Hmm, Butt fucking. <laughs> 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 I really think that anticipation is probably the sexiest principle though, because it's just like, if you're, I mean, come on, if you're, if you're banging a chick... You want to? <laughs> I didn't realize it was this kind of show. <laughs> I thought saying. this would be the one that, like, you let your kids listen to because it's about animation. <laughs> animation. Apparently not. <laughs> Animation's dirty. All right, so tell me Why when you're fucking a girl, what happens? <laughs> tell us all about manager. fucking women. <laughs> well, if you're if you're banging a chick, you're gonna have anticipation. It's almost like if you. <laughs> I so love it. I like, love the like the sensitivity. Yo, when you're banging a chick, chick, you gotta, you uh, gotta anticipate. You know, you so don't I, know how it's gonna I go. You know, might go in out, might go out. I truly believe that every single one of these principles could apply to fucking. But that's why we should have <laughs> fucking started this episode. I would have been down for that. We'll like, just okay, relate animation. Yeah, we gotta to, redraw all this stuff now. Yeah, we're gonna re-record principles but, of fucking but no like i won't go into him for too long but lately thanks to cody i've been obsessed with gavin mckinnis's work yeah and, man um, yeah Hilarious, and snore dude. snore but continue what do you mean oh. snore snore <laughs> this is relevant so he has he has this uh this movie how to be a man which actually cody doesn't like too much but i do and um yeah i like his first one better his first one. Oh yeah yeah traveling rants that one's great yeah but like he has this scene where he talks about how to eat pussy and um, like it's all about anticipation. Like the entire time he talks about that's, like yeah, that's a good point. That whole scene, he's just going through like all the anticipation aspects. Yeah, he's talking about like how you just sit there and you just like make her wonder what's gonna happen, blah blah, blah. and like all that stuff. And it's all about timing. Really, you could say you could say that like that him describing eating pussy in that scene has all the principles of animation in it. You should write that piece. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think I you think, should. I think you should break it down and talk about like all like, the different. Everything he talks about, he talks about anticipation. He talks about like uh, timing and spacing. He talks about um, in out, in out. Yeah, in and out. <laughs> <laughs> no, squashing but and stretching. Squashing, solid forms. Solid drawing, <laughs> but no. Um, but no, like uh, oh, enough about Gavin though. Like the, the freaking... I was gonna say, have you ever seen Women in Love? No. Or the scene where Alan Bates is like talking about how you eat a fig and it's basically just about how to eat pussy. Oh, man. If you want to throw that into your... It's a little shot context pussy. for you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Actually, that's probably if... if uh, well, if he talks about figs, that's 100% where it came from. He doesn't talk about figs. No, he but... talks about vagina. Yeah, he's straight up <laughs> talks about vagina. It's a very uh, descriptive and visual and physical and scene. No, he like, eats this fig and you're like, well, there's literally nothing else it could be about. Yeah. Everyone at the dinner table is like, <laughs> anyhow, continue. That's more subtle than Gavin's just straight up just like, well, this is what you do. Like, yeah, yeah. He, like he has to stand up for it. Yeah, he stands <laughs> up and like, it's funny because it starts out and like, there's nobody looking at him. And then as the, as he describes it, all of the people in the bar have like gathered around. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of the stronger scenes in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, you got to write that piece, dude. Just fucking write it. <laughs> Just take that scene and break it down and talk about all the principles of animation in it. Totally. But exaggeration is another one. Like exaggeration is like, I mean, you gotta it's exaggerate if you're going to get the girl in bed, you know? 
Yeah, man. I got an enticer. What did this turn do? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like, I've Cody saw it coming, I'm sure. Because, like, I've talked about him. Mm, Cody always sees it coming. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Is seeing it coming one of the uh, last principles? <laughs> this has turned into, like, a bad, like, blue comedy. The final principle. <laughs> seeing it coming. Um, but uh, Having yeah, a cigarette afterwards. <laughs> Hey man, yeah, you really show a character's personality when they're having a cigarette, right? Cody it's once true. wrote a song about how Santa Claus is coming to town, and the yeah. lyrics are Santa Claus is coming, a big white mess of Dude, snow yeah. is coming to town. Hold on, let me I let me do the actual proper line. I think I talked over Chloe complimenting me, so please say it again. <laughs> I love that song. It's called Holy Christmas Batman. Yeah, man. Old Seacliff song. I have it Bat on CD. It's a good fucking song. So the actual, the chorus is Santa's coming, Santa's coming, Santa's coming to town. Santa's coming, a big white mess of snow is coming to town or something like that. Anyway, yeah, that's it's been, the best line. I wrote it in like high school. So I listened to it recently. I even played it for some of my coworkers, actually. It's a good little um, song. It's a great song. Holy Christmas, Batman, baby. Uh, you... Tell me something that now maybe makes me think of Christmas tonight today when it feels like December 20th. Yeah, it's a motherfucker. Yeah, I like how it like works for all times of year because it, it makes you feel like it's Christmas. It's not actually <laughs> The highest praise I ever could have expected from that song. Cody used to have says, <laughs> Cody used to have Cody Paloozas, which yeah, were also the best goddamn thing. Oh yeah. And I think that if anyone's listening to this, you should all tweet Cody hashtag Cody Palooza <laughs> to bring that back. Get that trending. I want that trending. Okay. Anyhow, so what other principles we got left? Yeah, any we missed? We got staging, which is basically that it just shows you right there that it comes back to like theater and fucking like film and everything. Cause you got it's just, it's just like composition and like where people are placed on the fucking frame like i mean that obviously is something to pay attention to no matter what you're making yeah it seems like uh, it's all like you know matter of fact like sense making kind of rules that could right? apply to whether you're you know in high school putting on a fucking theater play or if you're drawing uh you know betty boop or whatever exactly and like i never hear people talk about this shit it's like They'll talk. I mean, like, obviously, it's probably because a lot of those things already have their own principles. Like, if you look they do at, and they don't, though, that's the problem. Like, yeah, you'll like it'll be a thing where like you you buy a book on like theater staging or whatever, and it'll talk about shit, and it'll talk about some other stuff that's like maybe not like that's what I love as about important. Them. But like, is this is like a list where it's like, yo, do all this fucking shit, and your animation's gonna look dope. You know, exactly, and like that's it's, the name uh, of a book. Yeah, <laughs> it's so fucking straightforward, and honestly, like. It's funny because like you can tell that they are kind of tongue in cheek and like blunt like that because like if you look at Richard Williams later on, who's like a protege of all these people, if you read his fucking book, Animator Survival Kit, it's like you don't have to be an animator. Like I don't animate shit anymore, but like I love that fucking book because it's hilarious. It's all it is is like people watching basically. Like he talks about like people and how they walk and shit, and like he says all these things about them, and it says so much about their psychology. Like. He has this bit where he like it feels like stand up bits that you're reading. Uh, he has this bit where he talks about how once he was driving in his car and he out of the corner of his eye, he saw a guy walking behind a wall and all he saw was like a blurry image of his head for like two seconds. But he instantly knew the guy was gay. He's just like, oh, shit. Like, how do I know that guy's gay? I don't understand. <laughs> 
And so like he like had to figure it out because he's an animator. He animators pe- animates people walking all the time. So he was like, I want to know why I, I know that guy's gay a- after so little information. So he like followed him. <laughs> like he fucking like got out of his car and fucking followed the guy to find him and like see him walk his whole see his whole body walk instead of just the top of his head. And he realized the guy was like walking like he's on a tightrope. And he definitely was gay. He realized, and he said, he said, it's because his head doesn't have any up and down actions because his head's like just moving straight the whole time, like he's floating. And like, that's why he knew, even though he didn't see his body. And like, it's funny because like, you can, you can, I think it's just knowing like those little gestures, like those little things that will like make a character stick in your mind so well. And I feel like people are so fucking half-assed now. Like you just don't even like think about that shit. You know what I mean? Well, I think yeah. what, what makes a good artist in general is a level of obsessiveness. And I think what makes a great animator are people that are obsessed with people or obsessed with, with you know, figuring out little tiny things like that. Just like the way that somebody's eye twitches when they notice someone that they know or, you know, these tiny little details. And you have to nonstop be drawing. And then, yeah, that's that's the focus. It needs to be for a really successful animation has to be on, on people and on life as we know it and how to interpret that and put it onto, you know, a a lion if needed, you know, that, you know, that's what, what makes it look realistic and what makes that lion, you know, have make you have emotions for that lion and, and think of it like a person yeah. Versus, you know, the people who are just obsessed with, well, we really want the scales on this dragon to look great but they don't really care about how the dragon moves or interacts. And maybe, I don't know. I mean, like, I actually think Lord of the Rings does a fairly good job with this, but then again, they have actual people, you know, acted out uh, that they're just drawing over and then they have their faces, uh, you know, there to, to trace over. It's like uh, rotoscoping. Mm. The thing about motion capture, it's really fascinating. It plays into the whole exaggeration principle a lot. Cause what you got is, um, like I took motion capture classes and I saw like how it's done. Did you get and to put you, on the balls? <laughs> I wish I had gotten to put on the fucking balls. Oh man. Um, I want to put on the balls. But I was in the room and there was like the fucking like, you know, crazy cameras everywhere and the fucking guy wearing the balls and there was all the shit. But like the thing is when you do motion capture, you use like three different softwares after you get the data and you fucking like animate over it. It doesn't even matter. Even if you have like the character done, even if you have the animation done, you're still going to be animating over it because what happens is there's a whole uncanny valley thing right. where you're looking at like an animated character. You know, it's not an actual human being. And like, even though they're moving with the exact frames as you'd see a person move, it's not exaggerated. Right. It's going to look like shit. Yeah. So what you have to do is you have to exaggerate their movements and shit. You have to fix their arcs and shit too. Cause what it does is it like fucks up the in-between frames and like, so that's another principle is arcs. It's another weight distribution and like volume thing. It's like, if you've got like a fucking character's arm and like you do a wave, like you're not going to like where your fingertips are, isn't going to move straight across. Cause that would mean your arm would change lengths. So like you have to like make sure your arcs are good. And like, for some reason that gets fucked up a lot in, um, in uh motion capture Word. and like, all this different shit. Because what motion capture is, is it's just a bunch of fucking dots on somebody and then all these cameras reading the dots from a bunch of different angles. And sometimes the dots get confused for other dots because it's not very good. And so it's all, it all fucking, you know, it's like a, it's for show, really. Like it's, it's for like, the fucking behind the scenes video where like you see people doing that and you're like, oh wow, they put a lot of work into this. But it's like you still have to do the same shit anyway. 
But exactly, it does man. look better, I, I find at least. I mean, but like I'd rather we see We don't that. know that the workflow is, you know what I mean? Like we it's just the, the end like, product looks better though, because you can tell when they do it. And I think it just is that there is some sort of human that they're basing it off of, which isn't to say because that's just, that's the thing though, is that CGI does have potential to be wonderful. Mm. You know, I just think that they're focusing on the wrong stuff. Like I think Golem looks great. You know, in, in all the Lord of the Rings movies. And I, you know, I think that is a big part to Andy Serkis, you know, having yeah. just gone yeah, out there and rolled point. around. And even if <laughs> yeah. they're, you know, yeah, I mean, even if the process isn't terribly far off from CGI, there is something there that CGI is missing. There, you can, there's a weight there even that I feel like CGI doesn't often capture. Yeah, I guess it's easier than going from scratch. Like it's like, it's, it's like taking a picture of your subject and then doing a portrait based off the picture, you know? Like, it's like, you can see how it's supposed to look so you can get it a little bit more accurate when you're drawing from it because you can, you know, have this perfect specific right. image. Well, you have something too that's just confined to gravity, which is what CGI really misses. Right. And somehow, and for some reason, I think that a hand-drawn animation 100% gets. And I think it is because of that obsessiveness and, and you just, you draw what looks correct. Yeah. CGI, is you're, you're kind of, yeah, you're starting in a void and then you don't, you get, I think, obsessed and lost in the details of rendering and picking out these, you know, what's going to make the hair look more realistic. And you forget that even if the pattern that makes the hair look good doesn't actually make the, the weight of the hair look good or, you know, et cetera. Totally. Like a lot of it is, I think, like it's like with anticipation how people aren't using it enough, like just something as simple as what they call a hold, which is. That's where you have like a pause where like a frame just stays in place and like repeats a bunch. And like people are afraid to use holds now. Like it's so weird. You it's see like, that shit in anime like every second. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like, yeah, you see that like anime is all fucking holds, but that's just because yeah. they're being cheap or whatever. But like if you want something to have weight, you're going to like when it touches something, you need to hold it there for a second. Right. You know, like if, if your hand touches the fucking desk, you don't want it to just brush off the fucking desk right afterwards. You need to hold it on the desk for a second, mm. like so that people can establish for their brain that well, it's, it's like happened. The, yeah. It's like the hand quicker than the eye kind of thing where it's like they need to be able to register it, you know? You yeah, know what, actually what you're talking about too, kind of, it reminds it does remind me of stage direction. And I think, you know, stuff like exaggeration, it works in animation the same totally. way it works on stage. If you saw somebody on who was, if you took someone off the stage and teleported them onto the street, they'd look like a crazy person. Yeah. Their makeup would be insane. Their, yeah. their, their voice would be insane. And their you're not supposed to see them insane. that close too. You're exactly. supposed to see them from like the back row. And, but in animation, it's the same thing. You need that exaggeration. You need that bigger makeup or those bigger movements. But it looks correct because it's in the world. Yeah, it's, it's in the that right box. setting for right. it. Yeah. yeah. It's like totally. with theater acting. Theater acting can be great on the stage. And you try and do that shit when cameras are rolling. Right, exactly. Like, it looks like the worst acting you've ever seen in your entire life because you're not seeing it from like 50 feet away, you know? Which is why I think, that, yeah, of course, which is why there isn't that much of a crossover between theater acting and, and actual, and, and rather not actual acting. That's <laughs> I actually love theaters uh, and, and, you know, plays, but theater acting versus movie acting, you know, the people yeah. that can do the two of those, uh, it's, I think, fairly rare that you get someone who's really successful on stage and also really successful on film. It's all about it's dialing one it or the back other. and how easy it is for somebody to dial it back or not. Because, you know, when you're acting in a film, you know, the back row that you're acting for is sometimes like five inches in front of your fucking face because it's just a fucking close up. So you right. can do very small motions and movements 
and that can read really well. And it also falls into like the whole thing we've talked about a million times, which is the Kuleshov effect, which is you can do fucking nothing and what you cut in before it or after it can dictate to the audience, you know, your emotional state, even though you're just fucking like standing there just looking forward. Like you sort of put the emotion on the actor. You can get away with such little fucking movement. All right, we're going to cut it right here and uh, come back for a little mailbag. So see you soon. Hello, Smug Film fans. Did you know that Smug Film now has a voice mailbox? Just call the following phone number. 718395 and leave a question for the mailbag or a comment about the show along with your name, and we may play it on a future episode. Thank you for listening, and now, back to the show. This question is from Matt, and he asks, what are your guilty pleasure movies? That's what Matt wants to know. What's our guilty pleasure movies? That's like hard to define. Like, I know I'm being difficult when I say that. All right, let's try and define guilty pleasure. I guess it means something that you know is bad, but you like it anyway, or... You kind of run into a problem with that because it's like there are plenty of movies that a lot of people think are bad, but I legitimately think they're good. Right. So I guess it's a movie that you know is bad, but you enjoy it. But then maybe you're just not exploring it enough. Maybe like you haven't thought about it enough to realize what are the aspects that make you like it or something like it's a it's it's like a it's a state of being you enter before you actually really explore something that you care about, you know? I think maybe oh. I would define it as a movie that gets one aspect right and the rest wrong. That's a good, that's a good you example. You know, like, because romantic comedies, for the most part, are pretty blah. Unless a couple of them are absolutely amazing. But I could say that I've definitely been in that mood to like, you know, I want to watch something that's just light and stupid, but has like this one emotion. And then I'll go seek something out that just has that one emotion of like, you know... Pride and Prejudice or something. That that miniseries is, I oh, it was pretty well done. But I mean, you have to be in the mood to watch like, you know, he loves me and then he hates me. You know, he loves me and that kind of like, but that's what you're going there for. And also the fact that Colin Firth was a total hottie is basically all you want out of that. Or even like a movie like Silent Hill is, I would say, a, not a great movie, but I've seen it multiple times. And right, there's part, something about it that just keeps you coming back. Yeah, the stuff like, I love that, creepy guy that walks he comes out of the janitor comes out of the bathroom and he walks on like he's completely twisted upside down and he has like a crazy tongue and he's like coming towards her and it's creepy <laughs> but it's also like yeah that's what i want to see mm-hmm. or the sexy nurses with no faces great that's all i came here for <laughs> i guess mine mine along those lines would be there's this uh richard kelly movie called the box which he did i guess after southland tales or whatever and, uh, you know, people like Donnie Darko that has a huge cult following. I like that movie. Um, but this is one of those ones where not a lot of people like it. And it got pretty panned and by the critics and stuff. And it's not a good movie, but there are instances of a great movie within it. And I've seen it a couple of times because of that. I would never give it anything higher than like two and a half out of five stars. But I've seen it so many times. And there's certain aspects. Like there's this one line that I love, which is uh, Frank Langella has this great line where he says, I'm paraphrasing, but I think I get the general gist of it. It's, um, I was struck by lightning and now I'm in communication with those who control the lightning, 
which is like such oh, an wow. evocative, huh. brilliant fucking line and delivered expertly by him. And it really elevates the entire movie because you start imagining a better movie than the one you're faced with. You know, <laughs> it adds a lot of mythology to the goings on that just isn't really there. But, you know, that that's a line that'll keep you coming back because you'll keep looking for more things like that. And there are definitely other examples within it. Like there's this great section of it where they have to just go to the library, like the two main characters, they have to go to the library to figure something out. And it's a great little beat, like in like a creepy suspense movie for like two characters to just both realize we need to go to the library and figure this shit out. <laughs> and so there's a section where they're like walking around the library and things slowly get like creepy in the library. And it's, it's a great, it's one of those great beats that like I haven't found in any other movie. I've seen tons of fucking movies. I haven't found like a beat like that where it's like this very like scary but normal thing that they just have to fucking do. I don't know. Maybe I like this movie a lot more than I realize. I, I think your description of it is really because like that, that description of like the whole looking for something that you wish was there but like isn't or whatever. That's I feel like that's kind of what happens with the guilty pleasure movies really. Yeah. You know, it's like there you can see the better movie. It's just not fully there. You know, that's how I feel I mean, like, but that's, the, I think the appeal of B movies. Word. Yeah. How yeah. about well, you? Uh, how about you, Chloe? Is there any uh, movies you feel that way about? Actually, one of mine is a really crazy B movie. Uh, there's this movie that me and my friends in college used to love that um, we would watch over and over again, but like nobody knew it existed. It was called Evil Cult. It's like by these two twins named the Taylor twins. It's like really bad, but it's self-aware about how bad it is. And like, it just makes me laugh so fucking hard. Like you can only really find it on DVD, like from, it used to be only from their website, but now it's from Amazon too. But like, there's all these weird lines. Like there's a part where there's a mad scientist and he has like a mop on his head for his hair. And he's like saying, he's like talking to the main character. He's like, fuck you, Neil Stryker, fuck you. And like, just like the whole thing is so exaggerated and ridiculous. And like the way people, the way characters introduce themselves and like get mad at each other and shit is so fucking funny. Like, and the way they do the special effects and you can tell that they know that they're bad special effects. I don't know, just the whole thing. I just think it's stupid, but I love it. Like even to this day, cause like, it's like when you get older, like even just stuff from a few years ago, you'll look at it, you'd be like, why did I like that? That was retarded. But like, there's certain stuff that holds up even like after years, even if it's bad. Yeah. Know? It's got something that keeps it coming back. Like The exactly. Last Unicorn. Yeah. That's a great movie. But it's like, it's kind of terrible. But that's a good, there's a good animated feature. I've actually never seen that one. Oh my I've God, you it. have to watch it. It's wonderful. Because actually it has, a, <laughs> it has a really great cast. It's like Alan Arkin, like Mia Farrow. Shoot, like there's a ton of like well-known actors. And then the story is super ridiculous. The arc is really bizarre. And the music is all by America, the band. Like it's <laughs> like... But there's something about it. It's the type you're going to like, you'll watch it and you'll be like, this is sort of terrible. And then, but there's something very appealing about it. I feel like most people though, they just, anything that is cheesy, they just call a guilty pleasure just outright. Like whether or not like the cheesiness is intentional or not. It's like with the happening, you know, that's the perfect example because M night in all like the press stuff leading up to it was like, this is a, like my B movie. I'm deliberately making a B movie here. And then it was trashed and everyone was like, oh, it's so dumb. It's so cheesy. It's so stupid. And that was the movie that he was fucking making. And if it had come out like two or three years later, because it had, 
It had Mark Wahlberg and Zoe Deschanel as the two fucking leads. All right. <laughs> but this was right a year before Wahlberg was in like the other guys and a whole bunch of other funny stuff and like pain and gain and stuff. And it was right before like the new girl. So it didn't register in people's minds that that was like a funny thing. Like these are two comedic protagonists. But he's Wahlberg is way funnier in The Happening than any of the comedy stuff he did after it. And Zoe Deschanel is really fucking funny in this and very wooden and very like Asperger's-y. And it really fucking works. But it was just a wrong time, I guess. Like it was just like a year or two ahead of the curve. I'm thinking of two. I don't know if you've ever seen the white, uh, the layer of the white worm. I love that. That's so silly. But yeah, that's the thing is that it's it's a Ken Russell movie. It's one of his later movies and it gets like fairly panned. I don't think people are fans of it. They thought it was really nuts. And really? even for him. But I mean... It, that whole movie is just, it's deliberately ridiculous. There's no way that you can yeah. watch that movie. I mean, in the end, it has like Peter Capaldi in a kilt playing bagpipes, like <laughs> going to go stab a snake woman who is like, you know, dancing her way out of the house, mm -hmm. you know, like this craziness. But the problem kind of that I sort of felt with that movie is that it was, it's a really good B movie, but for Ken Russell, it was disappointing because I kind of expect more out of him. Well, then that's exactly like the happening, I guess. Yeah. It's like, of course I expect more from Shyamalan than the happening because I know he can do, you know, bigger, better stuff, but I fucking love the happening. Like it's just yeah. an enjoyable film. Like if you, and it's not like one of those things where people always talk about, have you, you have to turn your brain off when you watch the movie and then it'll be good. Yeah. It's like, no, you it's have to true. turn your fucking pretension off. You have to turn your fucking, <laughs> like cynical outlook that like everything bad in a movie was a mistake, you know? Yeah, I right. feel that. Anyway, yeah, we're totally. gonna we're gonna wrap it up. Any final words, Chloe? I there are two principles that didn't get mentioned that are kind of the same as each other. There's a secondary action and follow through and overlapping action. That's basically like when somebody's uh, like parts of them are kind of like bouncing afterwards and following, like if you got a girl with a scarf on, she's walking, like her scarf moves after she moves and it follows right. behind her. There's a really good example of that in a movie I told you about like water for chocolate. She knits like this big giant scarf or not scarf, this big giant blanket. And when she uh, goes away um, on like a carriage, the blanket drapes behind her and it just goes down the, um, it goes down the road and it's so long that like it takes probably like a good minute of the shot when her carriage is already really far away for like the blanket to be done. And so and it's like a really cool shot. Yeah. That's probably one of your favorite things in that movie. Cause you, I remember you said yeah. you didn't really care for it too much. It's not that I didn't like it. It's that it's, it's kind of like you said, I don't remember which movie you're talking about, but you're saying about another movie, how there were parts of it you wouldn't trade for anything, but like the rest of it was a you know? Yeah. That's kind of how I felt about it. There's a lot of really good parts in that one. Cool. Jenna, any parting words? I would say that the last great new animation that I saw was the Tales of Princess Kaguya, which is the newest, well, it was, I don't guess, it's not the newest now, Studio uh, Ghibli film that wasn't, it's not Miyazaki, but um, it's still Studio Ghibli. Mm. And that was fantastic, beautiful, old style uh, That's animation. That's a little one where she's like a little. Yeah, she's she basically a Guy goes off in rural Japan, cuts down a bamboo stalk and finds a, a small princess who then grows into a larger princess, grows into an, an adult very quickly. Mm. And then he sort of believes that he has to, um, because he, he, he was, she was a gift from uh, the moon. He has to put her in a palace where she belongs because she's a princess and basically takes her out of the rural life that she loves and 
tries to turn her into a princess and about her just like depression after that. Nice. And it's actually like completely made me sob by the end of it Aww. kind of movie. I absolutely lost it. And I wasn't expecting to, but it, it's so depressing, but very well done. Just absolutely. It looks beautiful. So I would say that that definitely, if you haven't seen that movie, it came out last year, uh, at least in the U.S., so you should definitely check it out. It was wonderful. Cool. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. See you soon. Bye. Bye.